This is a Federal News Network podcast. Nearly every agency is involved in supply chain security in one way or another. Now Customs and Border Protection has expanded a cooperative agreement it's had for years with an organization called the World Business Alliance for Secure Commerce Organization. Here with more on the agreement and what they actually do, CBP's Executive Director for Cargo and Conveyance Security, Thomas Overacker. Mr. Overacker, good to have you on. Well, good morning, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. And this organization, first of all, who is this? This is shippers, basically? Well, the Business Alliance for Secure Commerce, it's a nonprofit private organization based primarily in Latin America. It has members in over 11 countries, 25 chapter organizations, roughly 3,500 businesses, which would include freight forwarders, shippers, importers, exporters, businesses such as that. Basically, they've sort of formed an alliance where they promote best practices for supply chain security. Got it. So these people could be sending material to the United States in any one of a number of modes, I guess. They could fly it in ship it in in containers. It could come over rail, I guess, if it's South America, correct? Well, yes. And actually, I think the best way to look at this is that American importers, businesses located here in the United States who engage in international trade, they're partners. These are part of their supply chain. And so these are businesses that they would want to have a comfort level, knowing that they have appropriate supply chain security practices to prevent things such as contraband or narcotics or any other sort of undesirable thing from infiltrating their supply chains, so that what comes into the United States, we have basically the confidence that those goods coming into the United States are safe and secure. So they have done some pre-work before the shipment would head here, in other words. Exactly. So at CBP, we have a program called the Customs Trade Partnership Against Terrorism. We launched that in November of 2001 after the tragic events of September 11th, And the purpose of that program was basically to establish supply chain best practices to prevent terrorist weapons or weapons of mass destruction from entering the United States. But it also has utility in supply chain in general to ensure that goods are safe and secure and that nefarious actors, whether it's drug trafficking organizations or other transnational criminal organizations, are not infiltrating supply chains globally. And so What we see the Business Alliance for Secure Commerce as is as a partner to our Customs Trade Partnership Against Terrorism, a way for us to have a sort of a force multiplier, if you will, of establishing best practices globally, but ensuring that all of our members within the CTPAP program also have knowledge of other secure practices around the globe. And now you have kind of expanded or enhanced the cooperative arrangement that you've had with this organization, let's call it the WBO for short, for many years. What's new now? Well, I think before we get into what's new, I think it's important to understand what we've done in the past. And so really, this relationship goes back to 1996, when then the United States Customs Service, you know, established the Business Anti-Smuggling Coalition with the private sector throughout Latin America. And so it was that sort of impetus that helped us promote common practices for supply chain security. But then as we got into the 2000s, when we created the Customs Trade Partnership Against Terrorism, or CTPAC, we continued to work with the BASC, or the Business Alliance for Secure Commerce, as they are now known, and aligning our standards with their standards so that we have confidence that what they do 
when they certify their members as being compliant, that we have a high degree of confidence that they are truly compliant with the best and the most appropriate and up-to-date supply chain standards. And then in 2012, we entered into a joint agreement with them to continue to promote that relationship. But what we've done most recently, the agreement that we signed last month, is a new action plan that has nine specific items to it. And this is unique in the sense that we've never had such an action plan with a private organization before, but it certainly aligns with our approach to supply chain security, where we see the necessity of having a public-private partnership. We're speaking with Thomas Overacker, Executive Director for Cargo and Conveyance Security at Customs and Border Protection. And so tell us more what's in the new agreement, the new plan. With this new action plan and the nine items in it, we've identified basically four areas of collaboration and cooperation that we will pursue. One of those is engagement with the Basque and their members on such things as maritime security and supply chain security to continue to promote best practices. Another part of the plan is that we will give recognition to those members of WBO from the CTPAC program perspective so that the members of CBP's CTPAC program will know who the Basque members are and so that when they engage in trade in Latin America, they can seek out business partners who are secure. So that's a big part of it. Another part of it is information sharing. One of the things that we try to promote within the CTPAT program is sharing information with our partners about risks and identifying problem areas and needs for improvement. But this information sharing agreement now expands to the 3,500 members of Basque so that we can really kind of leverage what they know and what they see on the ground in their part of the world, and we can apply that to our standards here in the United States. And then the last thing that will be part of this new action plan is training. And so we will engage with members of Basque and our own CTPAP membership to promote training of best practices, including the implementation of our new minimum security criteria for membership in the CTPAP program. Got it. It's almost like the good housekeeping seal of approval for shipments. In many ways, it is. That's a very good analogy. And since 1996, I imagine this whole idea of securing shipments and having confidence in them has gotten much more technologically intensive with barcodes and and, uh, radio frequency ID tags and this kind of thing. Well, yes, technology has gone a long way to helping us secure supply chains, whether it's technology for containers or just technology for tracking cargo shipments as they move. Also, just the use of advanced electronic data so that we know what cargo is coming as soon as possible in the supply chain so that we can apply all of that information to our risk assessments so that when cargo does arrive in the United States, We can segment out the low-risk cargo so that we can expertly facilitate legitimate trade. But at the same time, we can focus in on those areas of concern where we see potential risk and give those cargo shipments their necessary due with respect to scrutiny, whether it's a non-intrusive inspection or a physical examination or other techniques that we would use to make certain that the cargo is secure and that there's no compromise to the supply chain and that contraband is not present. Sure. And just for those of us that are not versed personally in the fine points of shipping, if, say, a shipping container ship comes to the United States and they may have 
five, ten, I guess even as many as 20,000 containers aboard. It's not coming as a pig in a poke. There's a manifest for that ship that arrives ahead of time so that you know where to begin the inspections and know what might be sensitive. Absolutely. And this goes back to the Trade Act of 2002 when we promulgated new regulations requiring what we call advanced electronic data. And different actors in the supply chain have different responsibilities. So with respect to maritime cargo, the vessel operators and the shippers have to transmit to us the manifest for those goods that are coming to the United States 24 hours prior to loading on the vessel at the foreign port of departure. In addition to that, we have additional requirements from the importer of those goods to give us a security filing 24 hours prior to loading on the vessel as well. And then we use that information to conduct a risk assessment. And we also have a layered approach to supply chain security in the sense that we've pushed our borders out, if you will. We have something called the Container Security Initiative, where we have CBP officers at seaports around the globe and strategic locations where we have the opportunity to work with host governments so that if we find something that we think is high risk, we can address that risk at the foreign port of lading rather than at the CBP port of arrival. But even so, when the cargo does arrive in our ports, we apply all of this information to our risk assessment, and then we focus in on those containers which are the most high risk. So as you can see, there are multiple actors in the supply chain that have responsibilities, whether it's the vessel operators, the non-vessel operating common carriers, or the importers, or the custom house brokers that file paperwork on behalf of importers. Everybody has a role to play in the supply chain. And all of them contribute to the supply chain security regime that we've established at CVP. And, of course, you're based in Washington. Do you ever just, uh, in normal times, hop on a plane and maybe go out to Los Angeles or to Fort Lauderdale to just watch the operation? Because it's an amazing choreography when this kind of activity is going on. A seaport operation is an amazing piece of choreography, just as you described. And we've seen around the globe where the use of autonomous carriers and autonomous trucks to move containers and and autonomous cranes that basically can take containers off of a large container vessel and move them throughout a container yard, place them on rail cars or truck chassis to move around the country. It's really quite an amazing thing to see. And uh, yes, I do travel quite a lot. I travel to seaports throughout the United States. And globally. And I can tell you, I never get tired of seeing that. It's really fascinating just to see how global commerce moves and how what gets on the shelves of the stores where we shop, or nowadays when we're shopping online, those products that we select online to have delivered straight to our house, how they get to the United States. Quite a fascinating process. And do you think we'll ever have a nicer tunnel that's taller out of Baltimore? <laughs> I can't speak for that, but I understand I understand the question. <laughs> All right. Thomas Overbacker is Executive Director for Cargo and Conveyance Security at Customs and Border Protection. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, it was my pleasure. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke, 
He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is starting to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness Uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. (laughs) Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up 
again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the secretary of commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the 
cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. And you've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.